Hello and welcome to Spore Module, brought to you by RoboFungus. I'm your host, Zach Leach. This is episode one, Fantasy Welcome to the World. I'm here today with John Bierce, author of the Fantastic Mage Errant series. John, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm uh, up here in Maine and uh, hanging out with uh, family and then getting ready to move to Vietnam here in a few days. That's a huge move. Um mm-hmm. I'm really glad you were able to find the time to sit down and talk with me. Uh, Today's episode, we're going to be covering about specifically world building. And uh, the reason I reached out to you for world building stuff is because I've I've taken a real shine to your method of world building because it feels incredibly fleshed out. Um, From my perspective, it feels like you take a lot a much more scientific approach to to high fantasy in your world building than a lot of other authors do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, uh, I definitely lean hard on the scientific world building aspect of things. Um, you know, honestly, a little bit of me is, uh, kind of surprised I never went into science fiction, but, uh, I went to school for geology. Uh, I've been fascinated with, uh, I've had a lifelong fascination with science. Yeah. It was just pretty natural for me to flow into this. I, you know, I, uh, worked a little bit in like science popularization stuff, um, you know, for a while there, had a science and history blog and stuff. Wow. So yeah, it's just pretty core to my world building. It definitely shows it like in your world building. And I was wondering if there was more of a geology aspect to it um, because of, um, not, I, I would like to avoid major spoilers, but there's a lot of times when you'll have characters describing different layers within sandstone and different features and things like that. And it's just kind of like, that's something very geology related specifically. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one reason why I have, you know, lots of like stone mages and so on and so forth. Cause it gives me an excuse to actually talk about this geology things, these geology things in a fantasy context. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But when we're talking about like your approach to world building, what sort of things do you look at first? Like what are your building blocks to start when, when you first get started in a world? So generally, you know, the first thing I'm going to start with is the large scale cosmological strokes. Is there anything weird about the planet? Anything weird about the, the laws of nature, you know, laws of physics or anything? Uh, which my answer is usually no to that, you know, apart from, you know, magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but weird about the world. Yeah, absolutely. I go nuts. You know, the world of major, for instance, has a huge moon disproportionately larger than our own, which is already pretty huge for a planet mm-hmm. our size. Um, you know, leading to things like much higher than normal tides, you know, the n- normal day-to-day tides, you know, looking at 30, 40 feet, something you'll find on the Earth only in, like, the Bay of Fundy, which is a result of some really weird, um, you know, wave and tide-related processes. Um, but, yeah, so I start, I start with a larger scale, um, you know, planetary stuff, you know, then I kind of just steadily shrink in, um, you know, what does the, the continent look like? What do you get going on there? And then from there, so once I have that basic setup, you know, what the landscape looks like, all of this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes maybe there's some cultural stuff, but generally I skip over and go straight to the city level. I mean, uh, there's a philosopher I'm pretty fond of, Manuel Delanda, and to badly paraphrase him, uh, you know, he just once described the city as the atom of civilization. And I've kind of taken that and moved over to the city being the atom of world building. 
right? And I build up yeah. both up and down from there, you know, to the smaller scale and the larger cultural scale. Forget, forget the cities. And, you know, I also love, as you probably know from Major, I love creating weird, strange cities, you know. <laughs> um, that that's That's definitely part of the appeal. And I will say like it's it's one of those things that you don't really think about until you start doing some world building whether it's for writing or it's game design or even if it's just you're a dungeon master in your local tabletop rpg you know you don't start thinking about it and it's like well cities are a great place to start finalizing ideas because in my opinion anyway there's nobody in the wilderness to write about well you know i I have a soft spot for wilderness survival books and exploration oh, stuff, but cities, um, well, like for industry, the reason you tend to get more industries and cities than outside of them, um, network effects, right? Just that higher combination of people and resources, you know, uh, energy flows in whatever form, whether those are food or water power or whatever, you just have more individual events and, entities and objects interacting at any given time leading for much more possibility for story you know yes there's a lot more variables available to you oh yeah once you get things kind of dialed in at the city level you've got your specifics working in there like your inner do you go into your interior politics or do you then take a step back um you know it really depends on what the needs of the story what i'm trying to discuss are so on and so forth with mage errant you know we start off the protagonist, you know, he's from the obscure backwoods area. He does not know anything about politics on a larger continental level. He doesn't know very much about magic, anything like that. So for him, it's just he's just worried about getting through his day-to-day classes and social life or that lack thereof. And on just a expository level, it's great because I want to explain something to my readers. I just explain it to my main character, Hugh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's allowed me to start off with you know, leaving big gaps in what is explained in the first books, uh, in the first books and just filling those out over time. Right. And just keeping the the focus very narrowly in on Hugh and then expanding it outwards. Um, you know, and that's, that's the funny thing. I don't really have a set order for where I, where do I go from that city level? Right. I figure that out over time and I fill in as needed for the story and for the reader. Okay. And yeah, I definitely noticed a lot of that because I, I'll admit that I've, because uh, I, I listened to the Mage Errant series first on Audible, and I've probably re-listened to it about five times, and I've listened to the rack about twice, um, just because I, I've i enjoyed going back in and like, okay, well, what did I miss? What are some hints or things that I can try and pick up in my re-listens? And it's it's an enjoyable series to listen to, and it, Ralph Lister is an amazing voice actor. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's... It, I, it's definitely up there at the top of my uh, library on Audible. But, you know, I and I could, from a personal level, I could kind of relate to Hugh a little bit because I grew up um, in a fairly isolated mountain town in Montana. And so for me, not understanding a lot of convention, not understanding a lot of things when you go into town, which he went a little bit farther than going into town. But uh, that perspective of not quite understanding what's going on definitely kind of resonated. But your characters are all very, very relatable in one aspect or another. So once you've accomplished your city level, do you then try and balance it out with what's going on in the world? Or how far ahead do you plan your cities 
and your world building and your politics and things like that before you start plugging your characters into and plugging your narrative into it? So different answers to each part for the cities. Mm -hmm. I don't plan them ahead of time. Hardly at all. I, with some exceptions, but getting to come up with the new cities, it's come to me something of a treat for me. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do while I'm world building and writing. And so that, you know, when I get to new location, I then get to sit down and figure out how this works. And it's a treat for me to keep me excited about my writing and, you know, just reward myself. I can definitely resonate with that because uh, whenever I sit down and I'm doing a tabletop and I'm running a tabletop role play game or I'm sitting down to try and write, which I've made several attempts in the past. Nothing ever came to fruition, but that's my favorite part is to sit down and be like, okay, why does the world work the way it works? Mm -hmm. It's an absolute blast. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of context you can do it in outside of just writing too. Like I used to play a lot of D and D or I, rather I usually uh, used to run D and D games and yeah. world building is one of my favorite parts. Um, there's a big folder of D and D worlds I made over the years. It's the best part of being a DM. Yeah, <laughs> it's up there. <laughs> that no, I mean, I think the best part of being a DM is when your players roll ones and you get to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you you have all the power to choose what happens to them. Oh yeah, well I, I love doing a whole. Um, I I love like amping it up. I love basically forcing when players roll ones. Mm -hmm. Those situations are forced to roll even more checks and just keep escalating things rather than just, yeah. you know, doing damage or whatever. Oh, um, yeah. I've, I've definitely taken that approach. Or if I have a lot of, um, or, or if I have a lot of newer players in that particular session, um, I'll take it as more of a storytelling opportunity to be like, okay, I get to narrate what happens a lot more. Yeah. My favorite is getting a mix of newer and experienced players. Because, you know, the experienced players will help the newer players figure out what's going on. And the newer players will then do crazy, insane nonsense that an, an experienced player would never think to do. <laughs> um, but, you know, back on the, the city topic, mm -hmm. um, you know, a big, a big thing I didn't have going is what's, you know, what's the geology, what's the ecology of the location like? And that determines... Um, you know, the shape of the city, right? There's one question, there's, or rather, there's two questions I ask before anything else. The first is, where does the city get its water? And the second is, what does the city do with its waste? Those are probably the biggest and most important ones because that applies to every civilization from a, a piddly village of 12 people to a major city of millions. Mm -hmm. You know, you get, you get those figured out, it will hugely sculpt what your city ends up looking like and feeling like. And, you know, I mentioned I do the weird cities a lot. One city that uh, I did, and, you know, minor world building spoilers, but it's a city uh, made of columnar basalt, you know? Yes. And uh, I'm planning out this whole city, you know, and I was hitting a lot of problems because columnar basalt is not a great material to build a city out of. It's an extremely sturdy material. It's just also extremely heavy. The columns are kind of breaking away from each other and falling down, you know. But, you know, big issues were this is packed between the deep desert and the ocean, no sources of fresh water, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, got lots of magic. So I could have just been like, oh, yeah, they're producing the, they're desalinating the water magically, but that's expensive, right? It takes time, man hours from a lot of mages. Yeah, it'd be an economic Those nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to say there couldn't be pressing reasons for it if there are other valuable resources or it had a 
sole access to an important trade route. It might be justified, but neither of those was true. But the problems with the city ended up, some of the problems ended up solving the other problems. Because the other thing, colored basalt, is it's really dark stone. It's almost black. Yeah. It's going to absorb a lot of heat through the day and get really, really hot, like painfully so. This is going to be miserable for people, people to live in, right? And then I'm like, so we need to drain the heat, which I'm thinking, hey, if you're going to do that, you got to do something with the heat. Boil salt water. Boil the salt water to desalinate it. And then you also get the turn it into a supplier of sea salt in through that very same process, giving it an export beyond just being a trade entrepot. Yeah. Um and and that's one thing to look for is a lot of times when you're the unique challenges of any ecosystem or biome on a city are going to be fantastic at solving other problems. You can balance them against one another. You know, because we have just so many ridiculous cities on earth. That just really make no sense. You know, cities like uh, Venice or New Orleans or... Yeah. You know, just there's just some crazy cities. Like, why do we build this here? What's going on? Mm. But some of the very disadvantages of these cities, you know, like the low level of Venice and New Orleans, you know, the vulnerability to storms and all the stuff also makes them amazing shipping ports. You know, conversely, some of the advantages some cities have are proving to be something of their downfall. Take Mexico City. Yes. You know, it's built on a lake bed, an old filled-in lake bed, which a lot of flat area, really easy to build on. Mm-hmm. Downside, it earthquake happens. It is much more devastating than it would be otherwise because it's on, you know, loose old lake bed, right? Yeah, there's a honeycomb of who knows what underneath it, too. Yep. And then there's, uh, you know, upcoming future challenges is that they're pulling so much water out of the aquifers underneath it that the city, like many other cities around the world, is starting to settle downwards. But because it's on a lake bed, it's settling at different rates. And so pipes and wiring and stuff, as they, as the ground sinks at different rates, get broken and severed. And this is going to cost billions and billions of dollars in the future. Right. And that's still less challenging than uh, Jakarta, mm-hmm. which is probably going to sink entirely into the ocean at some point because of, you know, water being pumped out of the aquifer, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, if I was going to say, uh, Beers' first law of world building. Mm-hmm. Your ability to coherently world build, to create interesting new worlds, is highly, if not entirely, contingent upon your knowledge of our world and other worlds in our universe, right? So, like, so what you're saying is, like, you need to, you need to understand, kind of, take your time and do the research on the realities of what we deal with before you start improvising. And plugging in your magical solutions to these problems. Absolutely. Um, okay. And I would say that's pretty sound advice. Yeah. There are, on the flip side, mm-hmm. it also makes you better at breaking those rules. The more you know about how our own world functions, the more uh, room it gives you to just violate that entirely and just be like, you know what? Gravity makes worlds flat in this universe, right? How, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, uh, you know what? Magic. Right, or being able to, like, say, this universe doesn't run the laws of physics, it runs on the laws of linguistics, right? The more you know about both physics and linguistics, the easier, you know, the easier time you're going to have creating the new rules of this world. Yeah. Do you ever have any difficulty trying to balance out the high fantasy with sort of the realistic and relatable? Um, Or does your approach to it make it a little bit easier to do that? You know, some, I think sometimes I do struggle with that a bit, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if nothing else on the layer of, 
You have all this epic grand magic and intrigue and all this stuff going on. And, you know, people still need to eat and go to the bathroom and, you know, have awkward disagreements and misunderstand each other. Yeah. And it, weaving the mundane and the epic together, it's always going to be tricky, you know? And it, it, it's not made any easier by the fact that every reader is going to have a different tolerance for the epic and mundane ratio. You know, some people are going to get irritated when you talk about basic logistics when they just want to read about this war against generic Dark Lord number 6047, right? Yeah. Not everybody has a head for logistics and agriculture when they want to find the hero's journey. Yeah. You know, and also you get like people, I know one person, mm -hmm. they work for NASA and they have zero interest in reading sci-fi in their downtime. They want to be reading fantasy novels, romance, all that stuff. Just They don't want anything to do with what they're reading at work. And then I know other people who are in the you know, very related NASA or in space fields who read science fiction all the time. You know, there's so much in there. And so you can never write, there's no one right answer to the ratio of anything you're trying to balance in fiction, you know? Yeah, you can't write for everybody. Uh, but definitely not. Yeah. It's, I, I have a similar situation. A friend I had growing up ended up going off to uh, get his uh, bachelor's in applied physics. And he detests anything sci-fi because he... He's like, I can't help but overanalyze it. It just, I don't, mm -hmm. I want to be able to escape when I'm sitting down to read and relax. Myself, I read almost pure fantasy and a little bit of sci-fi here and there. Yeah, I, I read a lot of fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, partially because I love it, partially because I need to keep up with those in the genre, you know, for work. Mm -hmm. But I also make myself go out and read lots of other stuff. You know, I still love sci-fi. I read a lot of sci-fi. Mm -hmm. You know, I read a decent amount of like mystery and westerns and yeah, so I've been diving into that, all these genres, you know, I try to keep on literary fiction because not always the most entertaining stuff, but they're pretty good at trying out new writing techniques and it's fun to see um, some good writers there. And then I read a huge amount of nonfiction, you know, my nonfiction reading probably dwarfs everything else except my fantasy reading. Oh, wow. And I have the advantage of, I'm a natural speed reader. I read very, very quickly. You know, I think I read 320-something uh, books last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that's three or four books a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's pretty nice. But um, then would you say that uh, your reading of nonfiction helps in limiting the amount of research that you need to do when you're sitting down to write since you've read a lot of that stuff already absolutely you know I'm, i tend to be drawing heavily on stuff i've read about um you know sometimes i'll go into like a you know some new popular science book um you know and draw something from it i was never expecting to you know and you know i i like to say that if i get one cool world building world building detail from a book it was a book well read, you know, it was worth reading it. But I also go and do more directed research, like the series I'm working on next, you know, I've been spending a huge amount of time reading about uh, various non-Western religions, um, and even more time spent reading about a very specific architectural movement from the 1960s, um, you know, which I'm not going to say what it is, because that would kind of spoil a big part of my next series. But, um, totally understand that. Yeah. If, you know, any, any of your listeners, um, are familiar with the various architectural movements in the 1960s, it's probably a good bet what a science fiction fantasy author is going to be diving for. There's one architectural movement from the 60s that's just a little crazier and bigger than the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that'll be a, a teaser. 
for whoever yeah. tunes in on this here. Uh, so that brings me into another question I wanted to ask you too. Your approach to religion, at least in terms of few, the first few of the Mage Errant series, um, it seems to me that the approach towards religion is that people will gravitate more towards the tangible power around them. Because I mean, they're a high fantasy world, so obviously whoever's king of the hill in that specific region seems to be more of the the focus absolutely and it, versus anything that might be you know beyond anything that's just amorphous in outside of our reality so to speak yeah so one of the things that fascinates me with religion is the extent to which either religion captures the state historically or to which the state captures religion mm -hmm. and mage errant is at the extreme end of state capturing the religion to the point where religion's function is purely a tool of mundane temporal power. It's purely exists. Um, and, you know, this is so this is a, a line from the book that hasn't come out yet, you know. So, you know, minor spoilers, but basically, and the reason it's in this book is because it took me really this long to realize, oh, this is the best way to sum up what I've been describing for six books so far, is... That religion in the major universe, it is the application of the, that religions are a means to transform physical personal power, you know, for these incredibly powerful archmages or giant dragons or other giant monsters, to transform their personal power, ability to level a city into social power. That it, it is essentially a machine for, tran, you know, transforming power um, from one type to another. And That's a really interesting quote. It it'll sound better when written. I'm I make the words go on paper. I'm not so good at making the words go from my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> I can I can hundred percent relate. I'd make a terrible politician for you know giving speeches. No, no, thank you. Um <laughs> but and then you have uh, the rack, which mm -hmm. you know, major has my big uh wizard school series with you know, lots of Machiavellian politics and explosions and kaiju-based systems of governance. Yes. The Rack was my awkwardly timed uh, plague novel, <laughs> which came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I uh, I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's awkward timing. <laughs> and in that, I moved a lot more towards the end of, uh, you know, capture of the state by religion. Um but not nowhere near as extreme to the to that end as major and as to the other end, well within the range of what's happening in our own world, you know. I found in reading the rack and um, exceptionally minor spoiler spoiler here, but I found that um, comparatively, if you look at the major series compared to the rack, I would say the rack is middling to low fantasy almost from what we see comparatively. Yeah, ma the magic's much more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly just used for peering through solid objects, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, into the uh, into the spirit world, as it were. Um, you know, and it's it's not readily available to everybody. In fact, it seems like it's on the fairly rare side, where it's you know one person in. Yeah, because you got to pluck out an eye and replace it with a gemstone. You know? Yeah, especially cut gemstone on top of that. So. Yep, and uh, I, I had a lot of fun with the magic system. It was actually inspired by using geological microscopes, you know, looking through cross-polarized light at, you know, th little thin sections of various stones. And I didn't even think about 
that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a fundamentally a tomographic magic system, you know. But yeah, I mean, I, I went in wanting to explore uh, religion in much more detail in the rack than I did in Mage Errant, right? Mm-hmm. Much more some topic. And, you know, I, I was really fascinated with how does faith and religion interact in times of crisis? You know, how do people turn to it or turn away from it, draw strength from it, or feel betrayed by, by the faith? And, you know, I, I, I wanted to explore a variety of, uh, you know, different relationships with religion in times of crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, exploring much more orthodox interpretations, exploring backwoods folks with very uh uh with superstitions that might not be considered so um orthodox or even heretical you know yeah i wanted to explore skeptics and all this stuff and it was one of the major themes of the book you know yeah and i had a lot of fun with it you know no i i definitely really enjoyed your approach in the rack towards religion specifically and it is apparent like you know religion is starting to take over a lot more stuff in the day-to-day of running a city. I am glad that you you chose to take the approach towards religion in any in all of your books at all. You know, there's quite a few fantasy authors out there who just say, "Yeah, they believe in a pan they, they, there's a pantheon and they don't have anything to do with the world, so I don't have to worry about them other than the specific uh religion members or they just choose to ignore religion entirely." And take a more naturalistic approach to it, which is completely valid. I'm not de- decrying it in any way, but I definitely enjoy your approach to it more than I would a lot of those. Well, thank you. I, I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, I genuinely believe, though, that even if we were living in a world where there were absolutely extant active gods mm-hmm. who were, you know, granting boons and miracles and maybe even walking around in the world and just speaking to their directly to their priests and prophets. And just obviously like they're right there. Like, you know, it's on the news. Oh yeah. This God is sleeping with this God and (laughs) this other God is causing tsunamis because of it. And right. Even if religion was that blatant in our world, even, you know, or even if the divine was that blatant in the world, I still genuinely believe that we would have a vast range of religious paradigms. We would have many different sects worshiping often the same deities in wildly different ways that people would work superstition and local culture into this. And that even with these active gods giving out doctrine, mm-hmm. the religious experience would be immensely wide and varied. Yes, a- absolutely. Well, and it's the, I think you would see a rise in more cult like behavior, even to shadow over the sixties and seventies had as far as uh, the formations of cults and cult behaviors. And there'd be so many widely different varying deals that there, I think conflict between stuff like that would be inevitable almost. Yeah. And at the same time, I guarantee that you'd still have people being bored out of their mind at religious services, even for, <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like even, even if your deity is walking around just to start a city somewhere, there's going to be a little kid somewhere just like wanting wanting to go home and play video games, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just bored out of their mind, falling asleep. And at the same point, you never know that deity might be sitting up on his chair, going, "This is so boring. I just want to go home and go to sleep." <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to personify the divine, you might as well personify him all the way. Yeah, it's one of those things that you have to take the time and do diligent research on if you really want to understand. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've, I think that's part of what has inspired me to really try to go in depth on 
researching and writing about religions and trying to come up with interesting new religions world building is that every religion is going to have its unique way of interacting with um with the world around it of wildly different paradigms you know even here on earth you have you know religions as wildly different as christianity uh, zoroastrianism hinduism you know we're, we're kind of deep diving into religion here well since we're on the topic of doing research and things like that was there like you were saying that you read a lot of nonfiction things like that before you before when it was still just you know a twinkle in your eye the thought of writing this series was there any uh, any influence anything that influenced you greatly or were there any uh, works that were like you know what I want to incorporate these types of things like they affected your writing style greatly when it comes to the Etheriad and Major Anthrax things like that oh absolutely was there anything specific that comes to mind my single biggest influence as a writer is Terry Pratchett. No question. You know, he's my favorite author. I was wondering because um, yeah. I, I I can't drop any spoilers, but I was it, there was a couple things that made me wonder. There's a sneaky Terry Pratchett reference in every major book. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of fun fun hiding those in there. Uh, fundamentally, you know, his his humanism, his uh, his rage at the world's injustices, all these things, uh, they struck a chord with me that's always stayed there. And I think, I like to think at least some of that's carried forward to my own writing, even if not so much as humor. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be a tenth the humorist he was. Um, oh, I, who is really? I mean, he... Yeah, he's one of the greats. Yeah, he, he truly is one of the greats. I found Color Magic in a used bookstore and just never looked back. Yep. Apart from that, you know, just a huge amount of fantasy and science fiction influences over the years, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, obviously Harry Potter, but then, you know, there's a lot of authors I look back on. I'm like, yeah, they're still awesome. You know, Diane Duane, huge influence on me. Uh, still looking at her these days. like, yep, she's still great. Um, and then I have a lot of outside science fiction, fantasy influences, you know, re you know, read a bunch of mysteries and Westerns growing up because my grandpa's obsessed with mysteries. My dad, was obsessed with westerns and they both gave me lots of books to read mm -hmm. and then a ton of of all things uh 70s counterculture literature american counterculture lit <laughs> right because you know hippie parents um nothing wrong with that and um yeah no it was a pretty <laughs> fun way to grow up you know like yeah my mom gave me a copy of the monkey wrench game when i was real young and honestly like look like I was kind of thinking about it recently and just like looking at the Monkey Ridge Gang and then looking at Mage Errant. You know, they both have a core cast of four people. Mm -hmm. And some stuff snuck in that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, I, th I think a little bit of the group, there's there's some similarities in the group dynamics between <laughs> the Monkey Ridge Gang and Mage Errant. Obviously, a lot of differences too, because Monkey Ridge Gang is about a bunch of truly foul mouthed. Bad temper. Oh yeah, eighteen seventies Utah. Um, <laughs> major is a little different than that. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. There are some. Yeah, like there are some overtones that sneak in every now and then where you're just like, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have a certain disdain for authority at times. I think I. Uh, Yes, a lot of that. You know, um, blanking on his name, the New Mexico Trilogy, uh, John Nichols, that's it. 
uh, starting with the Malagra Beanfield War, you know, all, all that 70s counterculture lit is, a, you know, another one of my big influences. And just as much as I've read in my life, I just, I, I could not even begin to list all of my major influences, you know, and more modern stuff like Sanderson, Brandon Sanderson and yes, so on and so forth. I'm yeah. a, I'm a massive fan of Brandon Sanderson. I was, I was very skeptical when, uh, because I, yeah, I was, uh, Robert Jordan, the wheel of time series was huge for both me. It was something me and my dad, me and my dad connected on because he had started reading them when they were for, when, you know, when the first book started, first came out, he picked it up in the bookstore just on a whim and he had been hooked on it ever since the first book. And then he introduces it to me when I'm a teenager. And it was something, you know, it was another thing that my dad and I kind of bonded on. And, Mm -hmm. um, I personally, I wasn't a huge fan of the way the series was ended, but I guess, you know, there's, there's going to be some pains whenever something like the situation they're in where the original author unfortunately passes away and they have, they bring in a ghost author. He did a phenomenal job, not to say he didn't, it just wasn't my personal taste. And I was like, you know, I really wonder what his other books were like. So then I picked up his Mistborn series and I fell in love with the Mistborn series. So then I was like, well, I want to jump into more of his work. And that's just been, it's my library has gotten significantly fatter since then. Oh yeah. No, uh, one thing that I, I love about Sanderson, this is one way I definitely consider him an influence, mm-hmm. um, which are honestly several is a big part of his, his thing, his uh, gimmick is taking what is essentially science fiction world building on a planetological level and putting it in a fantasy world. Right. Yes. Uh, Scadrial from Mistborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I won't spoil it, but it is fundamentally a science fiction world. Um, mm-hmm. The world from uh, what's the comic he did? Uh, this based off of was unpublished. No. White Sands. White Sands. Yep. It's the classic tidally locked planet where one side's daylight, one side's always night. You know, it's always which is a very high science fiction concept. Yeah, and he does that very well. And this, this is something that I've kind of seeing him do it. I think made more, me more confident about doing science fiction world building and scientific world building in fantasy settings. Well, it's definitely it's definitely panned out extremely well in your books. I mean, the Mage Errant series, that's it's definitely one of my favorite aspects. Not just, you know, getting in, we, we could have a whole other conversation on just the way you make your magic systems, things like that. But just the world building alone is one, is definitely a reason to pick up your books because it's, it's incredibly well thought out and it's incredibly well done. Well, thank you. You know, there's a million and five other things that we could end up discussing here today, but I think we've sort of put us, put a dent in the surface for world building enough that they might start doing some research on their own, which is sort of my goal with this whole endeavor. Um, uh, it, you know, I, once again, I want to, I really want to thank you for hopping in here with me and taking the time to do this. I know your schedule is insanely busy with your big move to Vietnam and trying to coordinate everything else. And it's, it's gotta be, I moving on its own is a nightmare and a bigger, a, a larger move like Vietnam has got to be just a headache and a half. Yeah. I mean, I will say this. I'm, I'm allowing myself two suitcases and a carry on and that's <laughs> what I get. <laughs> um, That'll definitely simplify it for you. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, I've been traveling with mostly just a single backpack for, 
few years now. I've been the digital nomad thing before I was living in Vietnam before. I've been doing it. Okay. While I'm back in the States. So it makes it a bit easier. But yeah, I guess uh, well, I can leave off with like one last bit of world building mm-hmm. uh, advice. Sometimes the most powerful bit of world building you can do is something entirely mundane. You know, when you're doing some wild sci-fi fantasy world building, just slipping in something that you would just see in the normal everyday world can just be so much fun. Slipping in a fun little critter, you know, uh, <laughs> mutant in our own world, right? You know, just you know, they're going through this crazy magical city and they just find a noodle booth, yeah. right? Just that <laughs> contrast, right? Noodles I, I are think... eternal. I think I know what you're referring to, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody because that's probably, if it's what I'm thinking it is, then it's one of my favorite things. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, like little bits of mundanity in fantastical world building can be incredibly powerful because sometimes your readers will just get overwhelmed with huge amounts of newer, bigger, crazier world building. And just seeing a familiar little touchstone can help balance things out. It can be great for a laugh. It just works. It's It's... There's a little bit of skill to figuring it out, but once you once you start getting there, it's it's one of the best things you can do for your world building. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, once again, thank you for coming on to uh, the show here. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll hope to uh, talk to you again in the future at some point, hopefully, once uh, the dust settles with everything. Yeah. That was all we had for today. Uh, if you want to find more information or even buy the Mage Errant series books, which I highly recommend, you can find them on Amazon. John also has a Patreon where he posts short stories, uh, both within and without the Aetherverse. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can follow us on whatever platform you're listening on, and you can also check us out at robofungus.com podcast. Once again, I'm Zach Leach, and thank you for listening. 